0: Yeah, so I flew over to the Olympics and I was just on the plane ride over. My knee just blew up like it was crazy. It was like a balloon and I couldn't seem after a few days to get the swelling down. I was getting stuck walking upstairs. I was getting stuck riding a bike. It would just lock and I felt afraid. It was like I knew it was like a ticking time bomb and still had to jump on it. It was weird. I don't know how I could jump on it but I did and could jump i was jumping quite well you know and not crashing anything because i was so scared to crash and then on the semi-finals i'd done one jump i was sitting in second place like one jump more for the final to make it to the finals and just yeah as soon as my ski landed on that final jump i felt that snap again it was like an explosion and blew my acl again at the at the olympics (laughs)
1: I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and you're listening to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes sharing their stories of their transition out of sport and into their new career phase. On this week's episode of So What's Next, I'm excited to welcome five-time Olympic freestyle skier Lydia Lassila. Lydia competed at the 2002 Salt Lake City, 2006 Turin, 2010 Vancouver, 2014 Sochi, and 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games, where she took out gold at the 2010 and bronze at the 2014 Olympics. Lydia is the first woman to nail the quad-twisting triple somersault and has been awarded the prestigious The Don Award by the Australian Hall of Fame, recognising her sporting achievements. Lydia completed a bachelor's degree in applied science in human movement at RMIT University and has become the founder and director of Body Ice, offering a range of joint-specific ice and heat packs and is now expanding into a a new range of yoga and wellness products as well. Lydia was a contestant on the 2018 Australian Survivor Champions vs Contenders as part of the Champions Tribe and then returned on the Australian Survivor's All-Stars. Lydia has not only written an autobiography, but it was turned into a critically acclaimed documentary called The Will to Fly in 2014. Lydia is a mum. She's a business owner. She's uh, incredible to talk to and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. So thank you so much for joining us, Lydia. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and what your relationship with sport looked like?
0: I grew up in a fairly non-sporting family. So I had three older brothers. So we were active, very active, but mum and dad didn't really come from any kind of structured sports. So I was kind of like, I don't know, sport for me wasn't like, I was like a magnet, like I was really drawn to it. I was drawn to the Olympics and felt like I was going to be doing something sporty <laughs> and I was active. You know, I was mainly acrobatics. So I was a bit of a monkey and flipping and twisting off things and climbing and so eventually mum's like, I think we better put her into something and, and put me into gymnastics, which was the right fit for that time in my life. And away we went. It was kind of like an obsession, you know, and it was um, a sisterhood as well. You know, my friends there, we're still childhood friends as now still friends as adults. So it's kind of, it was, um, it was my escape, I guess, from my brothers who who were like better than me and everything else other than gymnastics. So it was my own little thing and, and I loved it.
1: How far did you go in gymnastics before you made the transition over to aerial skiing? I... I was a pretty good
0: gymnast. I probably could have been better, but I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to to travel or go to the elite program, which at that point in time we lived in in Melbourne, and and it was you know on the other side of Melbourne or in Canberra. And so, mum and dad were like, "No, you're not going to be. We're not going to be breaking up our family unit so you can explore gymnastics." Um, so, so I wasn't allowed to go, and I knew that that was my ticket to, you know becoming an Olympian in gymnastics and I knew if I didn't go I wasn't going to make it so I I didn't go and stayed in the national stream program and kind of won everything there was to in there and was a good gymnast but always felt like (laughs) I could have been better and then I think it got to a point yeah I was 15 and I'd just won level 10 national championships and and one of the elite programs at that point a few had sprung sprung up and one was in queue at MLC in Victoria and um only an hour from my home, <laughs> not too far. <laughs> but um, they were like, oh, you know, we think you could potentially, you know, give it a crack, try and make it for Commonwealth Games and try and make it for Sydney two thousand. and So I was like, oh my God, yes, please, 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 please. And so yeah, I was allowed to go, and I'd lasted about eighteen months before my body just started packing in, and I, you know, I got good, fast, I really improved, but yeah, it was like a bit of a, it was a little bit late, I suppose, and um, yeah, just got injured and made the call to quit at about 17 and then it was like like one of those sliding door moments and stopped gymnastics and was wanting to do another sport because I knew like I had a good kind of foundation for a lot of different sports and I wasn't that broken I had a couple of nasty wrist injuries and ankle injuries so there was still some some kind of um, juice left in the tank you know and I still wanted to be an athlete I loved that lifestyle you know I really got hooked to the routine of it, of the training and the competition and that kind of constant tinkering and refining and that search, for, I guess, for improvement every day and not perfection but just wanting to get better. I just miss that. So, yeah, about that same time, there was I was kind of exploring different sports but then the Olympic Winter Institute had this idea of like let's recruit some ex-gymnasts and teach them how to ski and turn them into aerial skiers and so... I was one of two selected, one of my other gym buddies, Liz Gardner, who we, you know, competed against all our childhood life and um, and we both kind of embarked on this journey knowing that, oh, you know, we're going to get to travel the world together and we're going to get to, you know, um, ski, which we both hadn't done before. Um, and so it was all like new and foreign and then this sport, which was crazy, <laughs> you know, these amazing athletes skiing into, you know, three, four-metre high jumps going 16 metres in the air, flipping and twisting with skis on. And we're like, yes, that looks like fun. So we both were really excited. I was really keen to, to start something new and just, you know, was drawn to the challenge of the sport. And then it's like, you know, dangled carrot, there's, there's a chance of you going to the Winter Olympics. And I was like, yes, 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 this is, this is for me. So, yeah, so I started just skiing at first. And then once we could ski after a year, it was kind of a very accelerated program. Um, We skied with some of the best ski coaches in the world. We were shipped across to North America and we just stayed put and and just learnt how to ski and we were just kind of um, so in it, you know. And and me personally, I just hated being a beginner again. Like I hated that. I just wanted to get good, you know, and then I started watching aerial skiing live and people training and, you know, around the best in the world, I'm like, I just I was so desperate to just get past that. I remember that past that beginner kind of level and and
1: jumping, you know. Was fear ever a big thing for you?
0: Not at first. I was reckless at first. I just would give anything a go and I kind of I think you are a little bit more like that. just so naive and and I certainly was. Um, You know, we didn't have any structure in the program as well. Like I'd come from gymnastics, which was structured, by the minute you know you were told what to do when to do it and you did it and this sport was just like we we're left to our own devices and I being like a impatient you know I have a great work ethic I worked really hard I wanted success I wanted to go to the Olympics I wanted to be number one like I wanted to straight away <laughs> to just you know be the best female aerial scare in the world I wanted to jump like the men because the women at that point weren't doing that so I wanted everything at once and, and I wasn't kind of prepared to wait for it and um, and I really took a lot of risks, you know, with my body and smashed it around a lot and did things that I wasn't ready for and jumped through injuries and, you know, we didn't have any support. We didn't have anyone to just go, well, I think you're going a little bit fast here or maybe we should just, you know, do this in a, kind of a smart sequential order. <laughs> there was none of that and it was experimental. It felt like I was literally yeah, a guinea pig and, just like let's see what these girls can do and whether this idea will work and sure enough it, it did Or was at my first Olympics within 18 months of learning how to ski so and I finished eighth there so it it, it worked but it was like not the way to bring a new recruit through the system
1: <laughs> I wonder if they've developed the program a little bit more I'm sure they have they've learned a few things they have it's yeah. so
0: much better now they've learned so much from you know the past and and well me really in that, that period of time of like okay well yes gymnasts can learn how to ski and become aerial skiers but um let's try not to bust them all up this time
1: <laughs> so you've touched no, they're, on it they're good now yeah. you've touched on it a little bit your training regime and how it's changed what did your training regime and recovery look like when you moved from a junior to a more senior level was there much of a change or was it just not very sequential like you've mentioned
0: Yeah, it was. There was, I guess, the volumes that I like. At one point, I was jumping probably three times the volume of anyone else in the world, like a lot more significant volumes with very little rest. And at the time, I could handle it, like mentally, but physically, I'd I'd be hurting and would need that recovery. And looking back now, I was like, that's insane. Like it's nuts. I wouldn't let an athlete do that, but. As I said, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, we didn't have any medical staff travelling with us, and so when little niggles kind of came about, you know, it was like a bottle of Advil was <laughs> was my saving grace. And you know, I guess coming through gymnastics, you know, learned how to warm up, learned how to stretch properly, and all those things. But there was very little support. We did have the VIS, the Victorian Institute of Sport, and some trainers there. But when you're away for ten months of the year, and they're not there. You know, it's kind of really difficult to communicate what you're going through at that point in time and the and the impact and the training load. And definitely, you know, I couldn't communicate that as a nineteen year old. So it went from being very loose to really tightening up <laughs> to to my mature years and where I, you know, and, and that only came from not wanting to get injured anymore. Um was really, you know, you learn, I guess, the hard way. I didn't I knew I was really good, but I was going to self combust if basically I kept on pushing volumes and not listening to my body and not recovering properly and not having that kind of medical support there and not planning. I was just loose. I was just flew by the seat of my pants. So I just had to. I had to become a lot different. And it wasn't until I guess I got a new coach and I I started working with um, like my mental trainer, Jeffrey Hodges, and some sports psychology throughout through our team as well and that's when I just started to develop a bit more of a team around me that can really help me manage my body and then help me plan to achieve everything that I wanted to achieve
1: so how do you go about learning new tricks is it straight on the mountain that you go off and jump and hope for the best or yeah we
0: (laughs) used to be like that but these days we use a training facility called a water ramp facility so basically it's a big pool with an aeration system in it so that then you ski down these jumps which are a synthetic surface and it's an artificial surface and you ski down it kind of does mimic like what it feels like on snow it's just a little bit kind of rougher it's like skiing down toothbrush bristles and then you go off these jumps which are the same spec as they would be on snow and you learn your flips in the air and you land into a pool and the aeration comes up and softens the landing so That's what we do for five, six months of the year. And we're finally building one in Queensland, which is almost finished. Wish it was going to be there when I was still competing, but these things take time. And after a few knockbacks and disasters, we've finally got, you know, a home-based facility, which is great. But before that, you know, I was based in Canada at first and then in Utah in America and then my later years in Switzerland. And so we'd spend five or six months on the water ramps and then four months on snow On tour, so that's pretty much all year, you know, away. And then once you once you learn the the tricks on water, then you can transfer them to snow. Like they're ingrained, the mechanics are ingrained. But that leap and that first time is scary because you haven't done it before. Even though you know the the actions, you just don't know what it's going to feel like. You don't know if your speed is going to be right. Like there's all these other variables to take into account.
1: That I imagine would be exhilarating. Feel like you have to be a little bit of an adrenaline junkie to actually be in the sport. Yeah
0: Yeah, definitely there is a big rush like if I if you didn't feel that you would be dead because you'd have no pulse but definitely my pulse was raging a lot and at first it's I think you get addicted a little bit to that feeling and at borderline like there's there's a difference of feeling complete fear which you do feel as well to like pumped and exhilarated and that adrenaline like I think you always feel adrenaline but then it's Gets, sometimes it gets a lot hairier than that, you know, it gets really scary and you, you're, you're scared, you know, you're feeling fear and having to deal with that on a daily basis.
1: You've had some incredible achievements as an athlete. One of them of note was the, correct me if I'm wrong, quad-twisting triple somersault. When you look back at your time, what are you most proud of? Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, look, I am really proud of being one of, you know, the female aerial skiers that really closed the gap between the males and the females. That was definitely one of my goals and by being the first woman to perform the qualifying triple, we call it the big daddy, you know, that that was a big milestone for me and that was equally as important as winning, you know, an Olympic gold medal. It's something that I set my sight on from the beginning of the sport and really wanted to accomplish and, yeah, break boundaries, you know, break through that glass ceiling and prove that it's possible. So, yeah, that that was an important one. Definitely, you know, winning an Olympic gold is They're not easy to win. When I look back at the the 12 months before that and all the, you know, the hard work and the years before that, there's so much that goes into that one moment and for the stars to all align and everything to be right. Yeah, I guess I appreciate it a lot more now after, you know, a couple of, you know, you have some failed attempts at an Olympics and I'm very fortunate that I've been to five. But, yeah, I do appreciate the Olympic medals that I've won now because they're just not, not easy to win.
1: That is correct. They're not. <laughs> so I know you had a tough time with rupturing and I think re-rupturing your ACL. Can you tell me a little bit about this period? Is this a common injury for athletes or is it just an unlucky one?
0: Yeah, no, knees go with the territory, I think. If you can escape, you know, the sport without rupturing your ACL. So I think everyone goes through it's whether you do it twice or three times is the question. I was, you know, ranked dancing between number one and two in the world and already doing these triple somersaults like to really high quality and going into the Torino 2006 Olympics and, um, you know, I was a, on a really good trajectory. I was having troubles with my body still, but I was a good competitor and getting the results and moving, you know, in the direction that I wanted to. And then I just had a training accident over in Lake Placid or in New, yeah, New York State and knee kind of twisted caught an edge coming into the jump and knee twisted up the jump about 90 degrees and just you know there you go lost your acl five six months before the olympics so it was bad timing and there was you know the obviously that flew home and saw all the doctors and specialists and things like that and trying to decide what to do do we just do a normal reconstruction where you use you know my hamstring and tendon and um and have a year off and miss the olympics or do you try something else a bit more radical and try and make it for the olympics so of course i picked the the ladder and did a um allograft surgery so it's a using a donor tissue rather than your own tissue and so it was a, a donor graft of an achilles tendon that was used as, as my new acl graft and that went really well again it felt very experimental no one knew if it was going to work or not but You know, I was skiing within eight weeks, like it was crazy and we're pushing it and it was very scary actually because, yeah, there was just a lot on the line. It was the first major, major injury that I would had. So um, made it for the Olympics, got up, I think I did, yeah, I did one World Cup before the Olympics and in Deer Valley, Utah and and I won it and I thought, okay, well, after everything I've gone through, it's okay. You know, I'm like back where I kind of left off. I wasn't going to be doing triples. I had to kind of back down a bit. But um, I was still competitive and still had a shot, you know, of winning or a good result at Torino. So, yeah, so I flew over to the Olympics and just on the plane ride over, my knee just blew up. Like it was crazy. It was like a balloon. And I couldn't seem after a few days to get the swelling down. I was getting stuck walking upstairs. I was getting stuck riding a bike. It would just lock. And I felt afraid. It was like I knew it was like a ticking time bomb and still had to jump on it it was weird I don't know how I could jump on it but I did and I could jump I was jumping quite well you know and not crashing anything because I was so scared to crash and then yeah on the semi-finals I'd done one jump, or sitting in second place, like one jump more for the final to make it to the finals, and just yeah. As soon as my ski landed on that final jump, I felt that snap again. It was like an explosion and blew my ACL again at the at the Olympics. So it was really crappy <laughs> time. I was pretty shattered, but it was a good. It looking back now, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I up until that point I was just all go, you know, I was go go go, not very measured. I was always wondering why I was injured. I just had that kind of belief that I was working so hard. Why is this happening to me? Like, why isn't it happening to other people? It shouldn't be happening to me. Like, I could be so good if I wasn't injured, you know. And I was just in this up and down cycle of being injured but being able to perform still and knowing that I was 30% of capacity. So it was, it was frustrating. Um, and so that injury just put a stop to everything and it made me really evaluate what was going wrong and I didn't really know and that's where I drew in, brought in the A-team and started working with my mental trainer who just pointed it out to me straight away. He's like, well, you're not patient, you don't plan, you train too hard, you don't listen to your body, you know, what did you expect was going to happen? I'm like, well. <laughs> so it was really good. It was a really good period of growth, you know, having that year off and learning about some of my weaknesses and some of my strengths too and Trying to come up with a plan, you know, to get to the next Olympics, but not only get there, but but win it and win it doing triples and and win it uninjured. <laughs> so it was a transformation period. I'm glad I had it.
1: It sounds like you had a, a lot of hard lessons learnt that year. Mm. So when you were going through your rehab, was that when you realised what the cold therapy products in the market were like? Is that yep. where the business idea stemmed from?
0: <laughs> yeah. Sure did, yeah. I was actually sitting in the village, in the athlete village, um, in the CAF in Torino and I had a few friends around me at the time and just blown my knee out so I was miserable and I had this shopping bag of ice balancing on my knee and it was leaking, slipping all over the place and frustrated that I grabbed the bag and I threw it (laughs) on the floor and I'm like, someone should make a decent bloody ice pack that doesn't leak and slip all over the place. And it was like, ping, light bulb goes off. (laughs) And everyone's like, yeah, you should do that. You should do that. I'm like, I'm going to do that. I am actually going to do that. I'm going to have a year off and I'm going to do that. I um, started just sketching madly straight away. I just wanted these ice packs to be joint specific. I wanted them to compress the joint, stay cold and stay in place and got onto it straight away. Like I figured I had the need for it and I figured a lot of other people had the need as well and um, found some manufacturers offshore and started just putting an order in. Got some samples back and put an order in, got a container To Australia and had no plan typical of how I was going to sell it or what I was going to do but I knew the product was good and if I needed it I'm sure other people need it as well. I remember hobbling into my surgeon's office with one on and he's like what is that? I'm like it's it's, you know my new body ice compression straps that they stay cold and they don't move anywhere you can walk around with them and they're joint specific and he was like I'll order 500 of those thank you and So I was like, okay, I've just found I've literally stumbled into my target market of hospitals and orthopaedic surgeons and just went for it, yeah. So it was really good. Like I had a business up and running within six months and by the time I got back to sport, you know, it was growing and it was profitable and, and it was something else for me to focus on and I was learning, obviously, everything from scratch. I'd never run a business before, so... But but just took my time, you know, and, and yeah, it just started to work and gave me a lot of more freedom and security and financially as well to to do the extra things I wanted to do rather than having to rely on sponsors or funding, things like that. So it kind of just, yeah, it was a good distraction and gave me another priority in life, I guess which was important for me who person that was just completely blinkers on, you know, so focused on being the athlete, like running a business on the side was a really great thing for me.
1: Do you think that you learned skills like planning from a business and then it got taken into the sport of aerial skiing? Or do you think it was like you learned to plan in aerial skiing and then it got taken into business? Which way do you think it went? Definitely the learning to plan for skiing and for
0: being an athlete and And planning for success there helped me then shift that over to to business and still today I mean it doesn't matter whether you're chasing success in business or sport or art or music or whatever your passions are the process is actually the same (laughs) you need to have that vision of where you know you want it to go definitely that needs to be compelling and strong and then making the plan to be able to do that like I was always really good at the vision side of things but lacked the structure and lacked the details on how I was going to get there and that's what I learned in that 12 months off and that's like what I take to everything now.
1: I think also uh, just with your background and like your nature in sport, I think taking that risk into the business setting is also quite good. Like I think it's a really good skill to have is to know that you can take Mm. that leap and actually go for it. I think a lot of people have great ideas, but you actually went for it and you actually followed through. And I think that's a really cool skill that you would have learned from aerial skiing.
0: Yeah, I think that's something I don't think while doing a sport like aerial skiing, I'm not really risk adverse, (laughs) so I'm willing to have a crack. and. Also, I think what makes a big difference too, my dad, you know, ran his own business. He was a builder and from a young age, like I just grew up that as being normal. You know, we didn't have nine to five, you know. The only job I've ever had is body ice, the one that I created. So I think what you don't know is is good. (laughs) Like being a little bit naive and just going for something because the vision is there, the passion is there and you believe it's going to work is important. I think all good products start from there. And yeah, I think because I hadn't had any kind of security before, it didn't seem like a big risk.
1: As an athlete, how did you define success and what does it look like to you now? Success now is when I can get the kids
0: to do their homeschooling and homework and eat their dinner and, you know, uh, listen to me. I think, yeah, success then, I mean, it's so subjective and it's, for me, it was really clear. Like I, I really wanted that. I really wanted to be the best, you know, that was what I was always chasing and wanted to push the boundaries. I wanted the Olympic gold medal. I wanted world records. There was a lot riding on that because I think if I didn't achieve that, I would have felt like I'd shortchanged myself. And if I didn't achieve it, I would have felt fairly unfulfilled. But like a lot of athletes, would have had to have dealt with that failure, you know, and I had a lot of failures as well so throughout my career that that I learned from and you know and they made me stronger they made me better they made me think more they made become a planner you know and a strategist other than you
1: know that going with the flow. How did you manage stress in the sport and out of the sport both mentally and physically?
0: I think like I thrive a little bit on pressure and stress like it's I kind of tend to be more focused when there's a deadline or when there's pressure or when there's that element of um, stress and there's different stresses, one where, you know, it makes you feel sick and thankfully I haven't felt that on that many times other than being injured where you have complete uncertainty of whether you're going to get through the injury and whether you're ever going to be able to get to the level that you've been wanting to. You know, that uncertainty as an athlete I think um, is really difficult, period. And that's where the mental training stuff is is really important, whether it's breathing techniques or visualisations that I did religiously, you know, just to keep me focused on who I was becoming rather than what was going wrong um, and learning how to always positively spin something, learning to change my state, you know, if you're feeling tired and fatigued and unmotivated, you know, learning the tools to be able to pick myself up you know, and those are practice, they learned, they don't, sometimes they come naturally to people, but they certainly didn't to me. And so I had to learn them and practice them. And that helped me manage stress, that helped me manage pressure, that helped me manage fear, you know, it helped me manage everything. So that the mental kind of the mental side of things really important, as well as things like recovery, and, and especially yoga for me, and that's probably more relevant today. Um, I feel like, if I have yoga in my life or even surfing like I feel cleansed I feel calm I feel there's more clarity there and and it helps manage you know just day-to-day like my body but also just puts me in a better headspace I guess so um so those are the things that you know you just don't compromise on because I know without them then I feel feel like my motivation wanes or or you have those feelings of being overwhelmed, you know, anxious. So I think everything is a real balance. You know, I like to push hard, but I also like to show a bit of love to myself. And I think that's really important.
1: I did notice on the Body Ice website that you have moved into the yoga space with the mats. And I think there was a block. Was it your personal passion that made you want to get into that space? Or did was that like a market need? What was the decision behind bringing yoga equipment under the Body Ice brand?
0: Yeah, I guess um, for now it sits under that brand and and it's it's a new brand um, within Body Ice called Zone and Zone is, you know, what we're all trying to be, you know, in the zone and that was, I guess, um, a lot of people um, know me for like certainly for my mental strength and being able to handle, you know, high pressure situations and being in the zone and I think, we're always chasing there whether we're going to work or whether that we're teeing off you know for golf or playing a game of tennis we're always trying to find that sweet spot and where we can perform in in flow and just be and so that's what zone represents to me and that's where the mats come into place and I think in this day and age the type of equipment that I train on and work out on is really important and in the yoga space there's a lot of Plastics and really horrible kind of materials used for a lot of fitness equipment, and that was the inspiration behind wanting to really create an eco-conscious brand and, and yoga mat and range of yoga accessories that that were good for the planet but really nice to practice on as well. That's where we use cork and we use natural rubber that are you know completely sustainable materials, and we've also moved into the essential oil space and we only use Australian native essential oils and 'Cause I think, you know, we when especially when I practice yoga, the environment all needs to be right. You you know, I don't practice in a noisy room or in a cluttered space. Like for me, having some essential oils or um and having clean and quiet space is really important and having nice um equipment to practice on is really important. So that's what Zone aims to do. It helps people make better choices in the materials that they choose to practice on and the equipment they choose and everything we do through that brand is just trying to help people live better, you know, and physically but also mentally and spiritually.
1: I think it's a really nice balance that you've got of yeah, like that recovery wellness equipment. I think it's awesome. I think it really aligns nicely. As body ice grew and through my own experiences it's
0: expanded to not just to ice and heat packs but, but a whole kind of we have a mental training section and zone as well and the whole ethos is just to help people recover and, and live better.
1: In 2017, you were quoted saying you prepare for competition, why not prepare for retirement? Can you tell me a little bit about your transition out of sport? Um, I spent a long time
0: transitioning out of sport I probably spent about eight years <laughs> transitioning out of sport so from the point of where I won the gold medal in 2010 to where I retired and to the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018 and um, and I guess in my sport and through the injuries that I'd you know, sustained I knew all along that There is a, this is not something that I'll be able to do forever. You know, there is a definite time when I'm going to have to stop, you know, and you've been doing for a long time. So, and especially going through injuries and having time away, I had a taste of that life and whether it was through injury or through childbirth, I had two kids while still competing, you know, so I had, you know, years away from sport where i could then focus on my business i had other priorities in life i was having I had a family you know and building a house and all these other things that were really important to me and not just sport and i think that's what made transition a lot easier for me is when i decided that enough is enough i don't want this anymore that i had things in place i had a family already i had a home and for athletes when they do retire or they're forced to retire and, you know, they've had all their eggs in one basket, you know, and and it's difficult because they've had to stop something that they've loved to do. Yeah, I always say to athletes it's just important to have something else that you're passionate about, whether it's a hobby or studying on the side, just to, to give yourself some balance and to get the brain thinking about life after sport.
1: That ties in really nicely to my next question. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the question was, how valuable do you think it is for athletes to have a plan when they stop playing? We've kind of touched on it. So how far in advance before you stop or you consider retiring do you think athletes need to plan ahead for a future?
0: I just think that if we... I think transition's a little bit of a scary word for athletes or retirement is a little bit of a scary word. But if we could almost... Bring it into an athlete pathway that it's almost compulsory that they do something else <laughs> on the side, um, whether it's study or a business venture or a mentoring program or whatever it might be, even work, without it being distraction from the sport. I think that is totally possible because I did it and it was a good distraction. It gave me balance, and I think that that is what needs to be encouraged a lot more. And I, I know a lot of there's a lot of programs now available through the AOC, through the AIS that are encouraging athletes to not just think about life after sport but expand their skill sets outside of sport. And I think that's, that's all, you know, athletes need to do. You know, don't think about retirement. Don't think about, like, when is it going to be? And, you know, you don't dwell on what if I get injured, what am I going to do? Just start. Make a start on something else outside of sport that you're passionate about. And if you don't know, then seek some mentorship, seek some help do a few programs, do a few courses, anything really, just to broaden your world a little bit um, and give you something else to focus on.
1: So I spoke to a lady from the New South Wales Institute of Sport Mm -hmm. and she was talking about how they've started to introduce different resources and making it compulsory for athletes when they are getting funded to do something outside of sport. But I think it's, yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice, even all levels of athletes, not even like the top in the world I think even juniors I think it's really nice to like you said open that world view a little bit and just mm-hmm. get a little bit of balance I think it's really important so I think you've made some yeah. great points there
0: I think it's equally important for athletes that are making they're making a lot of money through sport like even when that stops they're not going to be able to do it forever so even when that does stop eventually there needs to be something else that they care about, that they like doing, um, that they want to do. I think that's just the way all humans work. And you see it in 65-year-olds that retire, you know, they fall into a depression or fall into a heat because they've lost their identity. And that's probably another thing with athletes that it's quite dangerous territory when they've only identified themselves with being the athlete. And I think that was something that I was very good at not doing. I recognize that, yep, I'm Lydia, the aerial skier, and I can do that. And I love that. But I also am a mum and I also run a business and I also like this and I also like that and that is who I am, not just the athlete. So I think um, people can or athletes can fall into a bit of a trap and just identify themselves just as the athlete and when that stops and when people don't know them anymore for that, that's when that kind of can really hit rock bottom and that's dangerous territory. So that's why it's important to have other things.
1: I, for one, was one of those athletes that was like, I'm a figure skater. No one cares. Do anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when I stopped, I was like, I, I used to skate? And it's like, no, no, that's not that's not a thing. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really. And you're more, yeah. and you know now that you're more than
0: that. Yeah. You're a lot more and a than lot of, just a figure skater.
1: Yeah. Even with work, mm. you can go in and say like, I, for one, work in marketing. I'm a, a marketer. It's not just that. You're more than just your job. Mm or your sport. Yeah, absolutely. What skills do you think as an athlete you acquired that helped you where you are today? Oh, definitely the resilience piece and being able to
0: pick myself up and, you know, get back on the horse after a failure. I think definitely as an athlete, I've learned how to lose and I've learned how to win as well. So I think that is something that I you know, carry through today into business. If something doesn't work, it's like, all right, well, that didn't work. That's no big deal. We'll find a way to make it happen. Find a way to make it work. So, always just trying to find <laughs> a solution. I think I got from being an athlete. You know, that was definitely always trying to evolve and improve. That has certainly carried through to to life in you know everything that I do.
1: Over I left it field question. What Mm -hmm. skills do you think you developed uh, becoming a mum that helped you in business today? The ability to (laughs) compartmentalise. And, you know, I
0: think, ah, man, when I was still competing as a mum and running a business, like I was wearing a lot of hats. When I look back now, it seems a little bit crazy what I was managing on a daily basis, but I was really good at being able to put it all into boxes and just focus on one thing at a time. Like right now I'm being an athlete, going to training and I wear that hat and then I'll get home and I play mum and then I these two hours that I'll be doing some emails, I'm focusing on my business. So I think I've developed good skills at being able to compartmentalise and just focus on one thing at a time because if you try to do everything at once it's completely overwhelming and that's how I've been able to do a lot of things seemingly at once but not really (laughs) you know but manage a lot of different things in my life at kind of one point in time so compartmentalizing as a mum is important I think as well becoming a mum I mean that you know your children become the priorities really they are I guess my greatest achievement so everything else doesn't seem as important you know as long as they're happy and we're happy then it's everything else isn't a big deal and yeah I guess it's just embracing we can't always be perfect you know especially parenthood like nothing's always perfect you've got to adapt and you've got to try new things and what works for one child won't work for another child so it's that constant evolution as a person I suppose which keeps life interesting
1: I did see that you have written an autobiography, and then seeing that getting turned into a documentary, what did that mean to you?
0: Yeah, I wrote the the will to fly, and then had some filmmakers approach me, wanting to to turn it into a full feature doco and follow my journey into the to the Sochi Olympics, which was uh, again another thing at the time that that I was kind of juggling or happening around me, you know. And so that was that was exciting, and they knew that. They had to kind of just be flies on the wall, really. Um, I said, look, the minute that this gets too much and too distracting, I'm going to have to shut it down. And, and they knew, you know, so they were they were great. They just followed us around and Kai was only two years old at the time and going into my fourth Olympics and defending, you know, my Olympic title, trying to do the biggest trick a woman has ever done before. So it was big, lots of, lots of things happening um, and I'm so glad it was documented to look back on and they turned it into a fantastic, feature film that has a lot of golden nuggets for not just sports people but anyone really so to make a film that can relate to all walks of life is a talent in itself have your kids watched it Um, Kai has watched it I don't actually think Alec has and I've only watched it once so I have a bit of a problem with watching myself on tv and so I probably should make the effort he's he's five so he'd probably enjoy it I think
1: so I haven't had a chance to to watch it yet but I'm the sort of person that will probably read the book before I watch the documentary so
0: (laughs) yeah the book has a lot more details in it they're always great but the the film is it's good it's a bit of a nail biter
1: yeah, speaking of watching yourself on TV, where did the drive to get into Australian Survivor come from?
0: Um, again, it, uh, it found me kind of thing. And, and I was asked to be on the show, and I've always loved watching it. Um, not a, like a crazy fan, but just like thought this, is, this could be really cool to be able to do this one day. And then as soon as I was asked, I was like, oh my gosh, um, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go. And, and I had retired. Um, as well so that kind of was like a a nice way I'd actually just retired so it was like a nice transition into a new challenge and yeah what was really drawn to the experience of it like just living simply and with no food and on a beach and with other people that I didn't know and you know, that, and then the challenges, the physical aspect of it was just, it was really, really amazing. Like I really loved the experience. I, I would do it every single year, for just not the TV side of things, you know. <laughs> I would just do it for the experience. Reinforce the important things in your life and, and really that you don't need a whole lot to, to be happy.
1: So you then went on it again. You made two appearances on it. What was yeah. the second time? How did the experiences change from the first to the second time for you?
0: was really cool, um, and because every, everything is new. Whereas the second time round, going into All Stars, like you know the character, it's almost like you're, you're a character, you know, and you know the who the characters are and that bit about their past, and um, and you know what to expect. You know what to expect through the production period as well. And so, um, I think that took a little bit of the the excitement out of it. Although still a fantastic. You know, experience. I'm not, you know, very good at the whole manipulation side of things and the game, the game playing. But um, there's a lot of people that are that are. And but I enjoyed it. You know, I really enjoyed the experience. And some of the people that I've met will be, you know, real life lifelong friends.
1: So there are so many athletes that look up to you, and business owners, and just people from all walks of life that would look up to you. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. Don't train harder, train smarter. And that was then the catalyst that led to, you know, that change of thinking led to a lot more success for me. So it's not the kind of the the quantity that you're putting in, but it's
1: really the, the quality and the strategy behind that. Definitely, you know, apparent in business as well. And I finish off each episode with the same question. What's next for you?
0: What's next? I think we're in uncertain times. And I think, you know, everything that I have engineered in my life up until now has been a really great choice. You know, I've had to engineer a a remote business, basically, you know, with a satellite team. And so nothing has changed within our team at all, because they're used to me traveling all over the world and not being here and I'm kind of like really proud of that because that's the way everyone is having to do things now and they're realising that it's possible and it's actually productive and so I, I used to get a lot of questions like well when are you going to get an office and when are you going to do this and that I'm like never I don't ever want an office because then I'd have to go there and I don't want to do that I want to stay home or I want to be able to travel you know and I want my the people that work for me to be able to have that lifestyle as well as long as they just put work in so that, I think we will continue in this environment as well. It gives me great confidence that those decisions were the right decisions. I'm really looking forward to expanding Zone and going into different territories with that. I mean, it's just such a new brand at the moment, so it's, there's so much to do, but it's, it's exciting. Um, we're looking at bringing out some apparel as well, which is all um, made from hemp, which is a, an amazing textile and super fibre that hopefully will take over the world pretty soon um it um was around a long time before cotton and yeah it's coming back into vogue for it's kind of it's um it's it's properties i suppose of being able to grow it without pesticides and herbicides and a lot less water and yeah so it's an amazing fiber and plant. so looking into that and just the kids you know at the moment we're back into lockdown so you never know what's going to happen um we do miss traveling we do miss you know going over to our family in Finland where where my husband is from so it's going to be a bit strange for us to be not moving around because we do travel quite a bit but at the same time enjoying home you know we live in a really nice part of the world on, on the Great Ocean Road and we have the beach we have the forest and just to enjoy that nature and and what we have.
1: Is this the longest period of time that you've stayed in Australia? For like, yes, your adulthood. It, is. <laughs> it is the longest period of time that uh, we haven't gone anywhere.
0: Yeah.
1: That's so, rough.
0: But having said that, you know, we got a good ski in January in Montana. Um, so that was not that long ago. And hopefully, you know, things settle down
1: and we get to get back to doing that. Well, in the meantime, I, I wish you guys all the best in
0: Thank round you. two of
1: lockdown. There's good parts of it. <laughs> it must be nice sitting at home, like, Having the family around you at home, that must be a Absolutely. nice change. It is. So we'll finish it there. I'm so bloody keen to watch the documentary. I was. Yeah, you'll
0: uh, like it. It's good. <laughs> you'll like it. Yeah. It's, but it is a full on. It's, I it's was
1: good. I was reading up about it last night and the reviews. I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I want to watch it. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, no, Jamie, go to bed. You're talking to night. her tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Watch it yeah. after you talk to her. <laughs> Thank you so much to Lydia Lassler for joining. If you enjoyed today's episode with Lydia and you want to learn more about her and see her product range, I will put the link to Body Ice, her zone range and where you can purchase the Will to Fly book and documentary all in the show notes. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, please hit subscribe. The podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And there is an Instagram page called at podcast. So what's next? And if you want to give it a review, I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining.